Welcome to episode two of the Justice for Jennifer podcast. Nashville, Tennessee. Jennifer Wyant arrived home at the Tanglewood apartment complex sometime in the late afternoon to evening hours of June 28, 1980. At this point, we know very little about what happened next. However, we know for certain that Jennifer had attended a local softball party. And though it has been questioned, there is nothing credible reported to substantiate that Jennifer got a ride to or from the party. Her black Trans Am was later found double parked in the Tanglewood parking lot. My assumption is that it was found there either Sunday or early in the week after Jennifer didn't report to work. And I was told that Jennifer was the type of person that was on time and didn't miss work. Jennifer was said to be proud of her car and she parked it this way to avoid getting it scratched. My understanding is that she hadn't had the car long and she had bought it herself. She worked for it and evidently took good care of it. What we know about her work ethic seems to match up with that. I think it would be very interesting to know more about how and when she got the car and where is the car now. Could it exist in storage or impound? And what would be the evidentiary value of the car 38 years after the disappearance? Of course, there's also the possibility that it was sold. Regardless, somewhere, there must be a Polaroid of Jennifer with the car. A Polaroid or something tucked away in a scrapbook or box and ready to see the light of day again, as are the details of Jennifer's disappearance. Sunset on June 28, 1980, occurred at 8.08 Central Standard Time. Considering that Jennifer likely arrived home in the early to late evening hours, she might have made it home before darkness completely enveloped the complex. This is significant to consider because if an attack or abduction of some sort took place at her car, let's say between the hours of 7 and 9 p.m., then the likelihood of this event being seen or heard during the fading daylight hours would have been very high. Even as we consider the divide between past and present, you'd have to think that the residents of the apartment complex would have been outside in the warm evening hours and seen or heard a commotion or something that just didn't look or feel right. People would have been out and about, walking their dogs, coming and going after a weekend day, or getting ready to go out and find some weekend nightlife. Here's a question. Does anyone listening recall what Nashville nightlife was like in the late 70s, early 80s era? Where would you go to have a good time? Was it vibrant? Obviously, the speed and ease of making plans would have been different than 2018, since 1980 was a time without cell phones, social media, or the ease of plugging a spot into GPS and just going there. There's probably a good chance you would have had to plan ahead to get together and go to a bar or dancing or hangout spot, right? So I would say that plans were not made as impromptu as they could be made today. 
I guess you had planned to get together in advance. Or if you couldn't reach someone on the landline rotary phone, then maybe you'd go to their place and see if they were home. Maybe if they didn't answer the phone at home, then you'd decide to head over anyways. Or maybe they'd roll up in the parking lot while you were checking to see if they were home. Maybe they didn't answer the phone, but you decided you'd head over anyways. So there are different scenarios possible to complete a 1980s style meetup, whether invited or not. One interesting thought out of all of this is that lack of 21st century communication didn't stop people from making plans, but they would just be made without the ability to text and post all your friends what you're up to. Those of us who still have one foot in the 80s would understand, while now wondering what Jennifer would have posted on her Snapchat or Instagram Saturday evening. That is a lot different than today. Jennifer didn't have a cell phone or ATM card to help us later understand her activity and whereabouts. There was no Fitbit or laptop. However, Jennifer's friends knew on Friday that she was headed to the softball party on Saturday. She had mentioned it, but no one on record knows what she had planned after the party. I was told in good confidence that on Friday, the day before the disappearance, Jennifer appeared to be in good normal spirits while she ate lunch with friends at a Taco Bell in Nashville. I didn't know they had Taco Bell back then, but I guess they did. In fact, I learned that founder Glenn Bell sold 868 Taco Bell franchises to PepsiCo in 1978. I don't have anything against Taco Bell, but I don't eat it much. It's not known if Jennifer's purse was located at her apartment complex, and this includes the car and the parking lot. I'm hung up on Jennifer's purse. Knowing for certain when, if, and how it was found would change the direction and discussion points of this podcast going forward. I spoke with a friend of Jennifer's, and it was suggested to me that her purse was indeed missing. I think this is important. It means that Jennifer's purse was either taken with her or it was taken by her. In episode zero, we discussed that Jennifer's license was found in February 1981 by a building contractor in Nolensville, Tennessee. The person that found the license is unknown to the podcast. However, we do know that he contacted Jennifer's workplace. It remains a question how he knew where Jennifer worked. Due to the lack of media coverage, it's unlikely that he learned this information from the news or the newspaper. It makes me wonder if something else, such as a work ID or the purse was found with the license and not discussed or reported. I do know that Jennifer's boss, who is also a deacon minister, later went to the location where the license was found and that a pond was later searched by the police. There's no information available about the depth of the search or if it included divers and bloodhounds. Without access to the case file, we don't really know. I requested to review the case file but was denied 
since this is considered an open case. That makes sense, I guess. I think, though, that after 38 years, there must be something additional known that could be released for public interest. I mean, basically, we know that Jennifer disappeared from her apartment, and that's about it. We don't know what she was last seen wearing, who was the last person to see Jennifer, and did her apartment show signs of her being there Saturday evening after she returned from the softball party. So let's say this. If Jennifer arrived back at her apartment after the party, got out of her car, and was immediately assaulted, then where is it likely that the purse would be? On the front seat or the ground, right? If she was halfway to her apartment, then it would be on the ground as well. And if she was fighting an attacker, then she very well may have dropped her purse. And if it got dumped, spilled, or left behind, then I think we would know that as public record. Or at least we should anyways. We're in a different world now 40 years later. But every once in a while, you still hear about places where people still don't lock their doors at night. In fact, during the recent search for Molly Tibbetts, I seem to recall it mentioned that in her small town of 1500 or so, people may still have left their doors unlocked. Now I could see that happening based on how people have always done it. In places where nothing much happens, and they haven't been exposed to crime. Was Nashville like that then in 1980? I'd love to know. Did people that left their doors unlocked at night also leave them unlocked when they weren't home? Check out the pictures of 70s and 80s Nashville on the Justice for Jennifer Facebook page. See if they jog your memory. The possibility that Jennifer made it home, went inside, and was either met by someone already in the apartment can't be discounted. Nor can it be discounted that someone came in through an unlocked door after she was already home inside. There's no information confirming if anything was out of place after her disappearance or if there were signs of a struggle. And as I alluded to earlier, it can't be ruled out that Jennifer met up with someone and left her apartment willingly on Saturday evening. I was told that Jennifer was a good person. And if you look at her picture, you can really get the feeling that she had an infectious energy and spirit. She was 21 years old on the day that she disappeared, and she had her whole life in front of her. Not to mention that her family deserves closure after almost 40 years, along with her friends, who have spent the majority of their lives wondering what happened to her. It struck me that she should have grandkids rooting for the Preds and the Vols. But instead, 38 years later, she's still missing without a trace, and there's been no closure. If you can help with this, contact Crime Stoppers and call in an anonymous tip to 615-74-CRIME. I can't make you do it, but I can make it easier for you. 615-74-27463. Justice for Jennifer has a Facebook and Twitter page, which can both be found by accessing your social media app and searching for Justice for Jennifer. The podcast can be found on most major platforms, including Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher. 
If you have information you'd like to discuss for the podcast, you can leave a voicemail through the Anchor app or email j4jpodcast at gmail.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you and hope to bring you a new episode in the not-so-distant future when we may discuss 10 missing details we wish we knew about the disappearance. Until then, take care, and remember, no one deserves to disappear. Thank you.